0: One and two and three and four. There's murder and intrigue. But the kids of Riverdale are gonna be just fine. Just fine, just, just fine. There's Jughead and Betty. And her dad's a serial killer, serving some jail time. Jail time, jail, jail time. We got milkshakes, it pops. And mimosas at the Veronica's Yeah, the kids of Riverdale are gonna solve some crime Some crime, some, some crime Cause, Cause the, kids the kids of Riverdale are gonna still be fine Maybe damaged, damn, damage, damn, damage, damn well, Sit right down, you're gonna have a real good time, real time With Team Cheryl Who's Archie? Hello and welcome to another episode of Milkshakes and Mimosas, where we cover everything that's even minorly, tangentially related to the TV show Riverdale. And today we're continuing along with Stephen King Month all this October, and we're talking about IT Chapter 1 and IT Chapter 2. And before we get into this discussion, because there's going to be a whole bunch to discuss, uh, let's give the very brief explanation as to why we're even bothering covering it on this show. Because one of the executive producers of it is a gentleman by the name of David Katzenberg, who has directed multiple episodes of Riverdale, three in fact, and one of the uh, and those are all actually the biggest horror movie inspired episodes of the franchise. So I guess that would make sense that he would then go on to executive produce. Um, which is a bit of a stretch, but uh, you know October has five uh, five weeks this month, uh, so I needed to fit in uh, a fifth episode. So this uh, this seemed like a good excuse to talk about uh, these two movies because there's a lot to talk about. And uh, luckily, I'm not I'm not alone. Uh, we have a new first time guest. We have Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hello
1: it's nice Uh, to be here
0: yeah thank you thank you for joining in uh would you like to just kind of kind of give a brief introduction about yourself and uh why uh these set of movies are kind of so important to you
1: well i'm i'm jamie i am a uh writer uh actress um and an educator um hopefully one day a director also um but really why these became so special to me was i i grew up in a really small town and um watching these just kind of felt like a lot of my experiences there reflected because i was i was a severely bullied kid i wound up with a a ptsd diagnosis by the time i was like 15 16 and it was directly related to the bullying so you know watching these movies and reading the book it felt like my childhood experience completely contextualized almost in a fictional way
0: yeah yeah there was uh there we'll 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 get into it as we go by uh but let's just say the ben story has always hit a little too close to home Mm -hmm. which is which is always a fascinating uh element of of these movies because they are just so laser focused upon uh, youth and they're they're so laser like the original book was all about kids in the 50s and yet it's managed to uh translate to multiple adaptations uh where they I think in the 90s one that is still the 50s I believe they still use mm-hmm. the 50s and the 80s but uh it's still very surprising that um you know they managed to uh encapsulate everything about the 80s for this one to do the bit of a, of a chime jump and modernize it. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting in the way of in the eighties when this book was originally written, there was a huge resurgence of pop culture from the fifties. And the fifties was very much a huge decade influence on the eighties because, you know, what, what usually happens is like every 30 years people who are making movies and making media, are the ones who are finally old enough to have a bit more control over what gets made. And that's why there's stuff that's kind of reflective towards like 30 years in the past. And in this decade, we're kind of seeing a reflection of that in that there's a huge boom of 80s nostalgia. Um, And I think what is really fascinating um, and what I really like about these movies is that it doesn't try to sugarcoat the 80s. Um, in the way that, uh, say I have a lot of issues with say stranger things, which is a fun Mm -hmm. show, but it it, it really sugarcoats the eighties in in a way, like things like language, right? Like they, they, they tool down what language the kids would use. And, and these movies are like, no, like they're, they're not, they're not woke teens in, in 2020. They're going to use slurs. They're going to like say things that are not okay from a modern vernacular, but that is how kids talked back then. Um, mm-hmm. and and if you want to show progress as it is you kind of really have to tackle those things head on and i think um i think these two movies do a, a really good job of that uh i don't know uh, do you agree with that or you know is it kind of making i that up?
1: i think i think they do too because I, I i think the way they tied everything in together like the slurs and stuff actually wound up having a big part of the um the plot and, uh, some of the arcs for the characters. So it makes sense because even today, kids are hearing these things. They're having that just launched at them. They're having to deal with people that, that aren't kind, that don't, that think they have the right to use, uh, slurs at people and just, you know, just generally be awful persons i mean awful people don't just stop existing
0: yeah yep that's that that is that is very very true um so i guess we'll 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 start off talking about that the first movie of that 2017's uh it chapter one and i just was curious um so have you have you read the book Yes. yes yes i have okay cool 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 Um, how there is always a a thing that I hear when people talk about the book is that people seem to say and seem to kind of think that the children's story is better than the adult story. And I was just wondering if you think that holds any water and how you think that uh, shakes out in the film
1: adaptation. I think I think a lot of that is actually reflected in the criticism that it chapter two got But I mean, the child, the children's part of it, I feel is more tighter than the adult part. But I also had to sit back and think when you're adult, things are just less like nice and just as adventurous as you are when you're a child. So I think the reason for that is very much intentional because I think King realizes that childhood has a certain magic that... Adulthood doesn't.
0: Right, right. And there's a simplicity in the children's story because it's just focused on them versus this creature where Mm -hmm. in the adult story, you have all this, like, I mean, especially in the book when they get to to turtles and uh, Mm -hmm. universe turtles and everything like that. But there is a a more metaphysical, more uh, far-reaching implications that they're trying to get to in the adult story. Um, That does kind of make it it's a bit more of a thinker, really, because like this one, um, it it does seem to kind of just follow under very strict rules as to like how they can deal with the creature. And it's like this coming of age story. And um, it's complex in the characters because they, they do some really interesting stuff just with with the characters and how they kind of set up certain characters arcs. In a way that I didn't really appreciate the first time around. Um, so, so one of the things that I noticed right off the bat is the very first thing you see Richie wearing in mm-hmm. as a kid is the is basically like a pride shirt because it's like a rainbow flag uh-huh. shirt, right? Like, and it's this like sly. It's like not even like a sly hint. It's just like it's it's setting this this whole kind of thing up that you don't even realize um, when you uh, if you just watch it for the first time. Um, which, which there's a lot to say about like costume direction and, and the costuming in this movie, I think is, uh, is spectacular. Um, but yeah, I guess, uh, let's just get, get your opinions on this first movie and what you think about it as an adaptation and how you, how do you think, like, if you had any like favorite moments and favorite characters, that kind of stuff.
1: Alrighty. Um, I've, I love it. I love the movie even, though i i've seen people be like oh the miniseries is better and i'm like okay that's your opinion but i love the movie i said to my best friend i wish i could bottle that feeling that i had walking out of the theater after watching the first one for the first time because it was such a high because so much of the movie it felt like a balm to my heart because it's it's a, it's a horror movie but it doesn't shy away from being sweet and genuine and absolutely heartfelt
0: right right they really don't kind of skimp away for the bigger emotional uh beats which uh, you know there, there are a lot of horror movies out there that are that are very cynical and i mean there's mm-hmm. a lot of people out there that are very cynical so it's it's always refreshing when a movie really goes like, no, like this is a heartfelt moment between these characters and it matters, and there's like weight behind their decisions, stuff like that. And it doesn't just act like everything doesn't matter. Um, Because one of the one of the things I think is so powerful about this entire book franchise is that it's really all about the power of belief, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of focus in that and it's like look these things matter like if you if you don't think anything matters Then nothing's gonna matter, but if you like put weight behind it and you put intention behind it things will matter Which I think is I think it's very fascinating and it's a good good lesson from the from this story uh, and also, I've seen the miniseries and the miniseries has like a 10 minute like bike riding montage, which is just <laughs> which is, which is, which is, is bad. I think people I think people equate how good Tim Curry in, is in that movie to how uh, <laughs> to the overall quality personally. That's it's,
1: it's funny because you were talking about nostalgia. I think a lot of the miniseries is viewed through the lens of nostalgia which is fine there's a lot of stuff that's not high art from my childhood that i absolutely love because i associate with that just wonder and that awesomeness uh and that that's totally fine but oh my gosh i grew up in a house where my father had watched the it miniseries and he he doesn't like it at all and then when he watched the first movie he was like this is this is it this is like the best horror movie i've ever seen he was ecstatic he loves the it movies and i just i am so just in love with the cross-generational appeal of this movie
0: right yeah it's it's a very much uh you know a multi-focused movie about like all these different generations and and focusing focusing on everything um i guess we did talk about pennywise what do you think about this version of pennywise do you think they captured the like Innocence to flip to being creepy, or do you think they went a little too creepy with them off the bat? Uh, I'm just curious about what your opinion on
1: that was. I honestly, I I said Bill Skarsgård is doing his most, and by saying that, he's just like it's almost terrifying just how good he is at playing this character, and like you can really tell he understands it and its motives and I was honestly kind of blown away because like when you first meet Pennywise he's kind of you know really uh playful and uh but there's that always that underlying sinister uh presence there and that's something that I thought was going to be really difficult to capture but I think they did that perfectly like from the jump so i like i have no issues with um this version of pennywise at all
0: nice nice uh i really love how one how good he is in the role versus all these like behind the scenes tidbits yeah in the makeup but he's just like so casual like i've like just seen him he's just like walking around talking to the kids like normal and he's not you know sometimes when you hear about like an actor who's like playing a villain they will purposely mm-hmm. like distance themselves from the kids and like be, to be more creepy and to be more scary. And you're always a little, I'm always a little bit like, that's a little, that's a little much, but th- that, I mean, whatever works for an actor, obviously. Uh, but it was really nice to see that he then, he like befriended the kids and he was like nice to the kids and he, like, he worked alongside them really well, which I thought was uh, a good change of pace. Uh, Cause no- normally if you get like an adult playing a villain character and there's kids involved, they're always like, I stay away from the cast and I'm in a dark corner. So they think I'm mysterious. And scary on set i'm always like oh, okay
1: <laughs> i just think that's really funny because they actually did like before like they shot any of the pennywise scenes he wasn't with the kids and he oh. was he talked about how it was kind of lonely and stuff and that everybody was having a good time but then like he did get to integrate with the kids and like all the behind the scenes stuff with him and the kids is just gold
0: yeah it's so it's so it's so cute it's so precious um i think i think it's a a fascinating thing to talk about is is the kids themselves like uh Uh i was i was amazed by how well this was cast in that they all felt like real kids yes um, which is very hard to do uh especially especially like in, in hollywood right like they they really went through through the efforts to kind of uh capture kids as kids which i thought was was really impressive uh although i am a little bit worried for finn wolfhard he may not understand what decade he's actually in uh, oh bless his
1: heart like my (laughs) we uh, was like poor finn he's just gonna be like i was like he just can't even as a child skip leg day because he's just always on a bike
0: (laughs) very true he's always on a bike and i can't imagine what his what his conversations with his peers are like because half of his knowledge is going to just be 80s pop culture because he has yeah has has to ingrain himself in it for this and for stranger things which is which is very funny although i was impressed that like he it it didn't feel like his character in stranger things at all like it feels like an entirely different character to just kind of like prove how well he is as an actor right
1: it's just it's like a 180 completely um like like, I know even adult actors, there's some issues differentiating. But with uh, Mike and Richie, they're just worlds apart. And he doesn't approach them the same way. And I was like, dang, this this kid is an actor. Like, no, uh, no doubts about it. He really, he's doing stuff that, like, some adult actors just dream of.
0: Right. Yeah. No. I. I agree. I agree. He was. He was impressive. Uh, he was impressive.
1: I really liked
0: the performance of Ben by Jeremy Ray Taylor as well. Yes. I think there's so much uh, heart in that character, mm-hmm. and then you also like you know you feel it. Uh, you feel, like he he really expresses and like his emotions are are very subtle, but they can be, there's a lot of depth to them, which I was I was really impressed by especially from I'd be impressed by it from any actor and it's just yeah like, this is this is a kid and you're like oh my goodness like I,
1: what's so I think so special about Jeremy Ray Taylor and his portrayal of Ben is he just one look and you know exactly what he's thinking and he's feeling and it just it correlates so well to Ben in the book for me because a lot of Ben he is introverted a lot he has a lot going up in his on up in his mind and in his heart and he doesn't really communicate it he kind of hides that part of himself away and i feel like they just got that spot on with just a look
0: right right one of my favorite looks that he gives is when he brings all the losers club into his into his little room and he you think he's he thinks he's hidden all of his new kids on the block merchandise and everything. And then Beverly, uh, played by again, Sophia Lillis, who does an amazing job. Uh, she just like finds the the one poster, which she like opens the door and it does that like zoom in with the music yes. playing. And they have that and they just have that look exchange where he's just like, oh, come on. Like you, you can just see it. He's like, oh, please, please don't do this to me. And she just like smiles and like closes the door. And it's such like a simple... Uh, sequence, and there's no words exchanged, but there's a lot of uh, emotional depth to that uh, exchange, which I thought was just uh, beautiful, it, to be honest with you. I just thought that it's was like, ador-
1: really- It's adorable, and I just, I love that little part, because there, as you said, there's just so much going on between them, and it's, it's, it's so cute, and they have just such an adorable chemistry that... Uh, they just I think they just struck such a beautiful balance right there with them uh, because it's just it's so cute.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's it's it is very cute. What do you think about um, the fact that we we only get brief snippets of their actual families um, because you know we get eddie's eddie's mom is something that i kind of want to talk about because that's uh, that's an issue that i think there is a little bit in king's work in that um he tends to kind of villainize a lot of like overweight women um there's like there, there i've seen that in a lot of his work and there's a little bit of a criticism in that he he does kind of there is some kind of glances over to fat phobia depending on how it is um and and i've heard that uh that criticism um and i thought eddie's mom is a little bit indicative of that i i don't know what yeah i I don't know what your opinion of that
1: well i think yeah that's 100 this is 100% a valid criticism and it's one of the ones i have myself um it's like he just he kind of he equates you know being overweight to evil a lot and i just that's one of the facets that i don't really like in king's works as a whole because i was like that's that doesn't really hold water for me honestly i'm like no that...
0: no it, it doesn't it's 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 fascinating though because i think in his youth he was like a bit a bit heavier right so like i don't even know if it might be something that he internalized when he was younger and then it's kind of uh you know kind of shown up throughout his work as something that he actually needs to like one of the issues that he may need to deal with at some point right so it's one of those
1: yeah i I mean even though he's like in his 70s now i was like you know it's never too late to deal with that stuff so i mean he could resolve it eventually i mean he's still kicking still writing and i i think he's actually i mean i would i would honestly love to hear somebody like not really confront him about it, but, you know, have an earnest conversation with him about that.
0: Right, right. Because it's just, it, it just parallels so, so strangely with Ben's story in that, mm-hmm. like, Ben is such, like, a well-written... Like, it, it seems like as soon as they cross the threshold into adulthood, the sympathy for them is lost, almost. Um, yeah. Which is, which is just a fascinating, fascinating thing to happen. Um... And then the the other the other like we get very little of Bill's parents, which I think is I think is fascinating because we never see his mom, but we just see the one brief snippet of his dad who is just completely detached uh, from from humanity because um, he's just like yelling and like, you're like, ah, mm-hmm. he's dead. He's dead. And he just like kind of just goes off on his son. And you're like, oh, my goodness. Like, ay. yeah. Ay, ay this poor kid, like he just lost his brother and he's just trying to cope in his own way and then, you know, the dad the dad, all is clearly not coping well at all.
1: Yeah, and that in itself is actually kind of like a small little subplot to um, Bill's character and kind of shapes him because honestly in the book you get such a clear picture of emotional neglect from uh, Bill's parents because they're not grieving healthy and they're not they're not there for their young son who is also grieving it's it's really complex but it's also interesting to see that from a child's perspective because poor poor bill is just he's trying to contextualize everything but they're not they're not doing that themselves and they're not helping each other and helping their son it's like georgie was the glue that held the family together and then when georgie dies like any kind of warmth in um bill's home just kind of goes with georgie
0: right and i i think it's that's one of those things where it's like you only have so much time in an adaptation this book is giant right this book is insanely huge um Excuse me. The audiobook alone is like fifty hours. Um, oh my so, gosh! <laughs> yeah, so it's like it's a it's a commitment, um, and it's uh, it's one of those things where you can't you cannot cover everything. And I think that they still do a good job of expressing everything that you're talking about from that one scene, and then from how Bill interacts with his friends. So it's not it's not necessarily a, a weakness. I just think it's a it's an interesting tidbit that they don't they don't show up because the uh well we don't see ben's parents at all like we yeah. don't see them we don't see them at all um and I, I it's not as important as important to his story right i would be interested to see maybe if his parents were like oh uh, you're like if they were like uh abusive because of his weight or something like that in the book or if they were just well, kind of like normal parents i don't know okay this
1: is this leads to really okay ben in the book is the child of a single mother his father has passed um I think. And his mother actually kind of enables his overeating because she feels like she's failing Ben because she can't spend as much time with him because she's always working to provide for him. And she just kind of, it's like, if he's fed, I'm taking care of him. And he's he's okay.
0: Right, right. So yeah, so there's, a, there's so I guess the his maybe something with his parents would have worked, but again, I think that is not as. Um, I think we get the most time with Beverly's dad, uh, mm-hmm. or maybe, or I I don't know if we do get the most time, but those scenes are crazy impactful because they oh are my God. really really hard to watch. But. It's it's one of those things where it's like yeah like this is the, like it's it's a thing where um you know there's parts of it where you want to look away but it's also like look like there are so many young women in this situation that can't look away so like you kind of need to deal with this in in reality and, and deal with it on the forefront and deal with it in a huge movie that makes a whole bunch of money because if you don't tackle it where the most people can see it like people will just you know go oh it happens behind closed doors so we don't care but this is the kind of thing that is a huge issue uh everywhere but especially uh you know in in North America that it's uh it's real hard to watch but unfortunately like it's uh it's true to life which is
1: yeah so Beverly's character just as a whole just how just insightful King gets on that and i i was because um when i was doing my literature masters um i actually wrote my thesis paper over the childhood trauma in the book and beverly's was one of the most heartbreaking and fascinating pieces to write because I've seen a lot of criticism where they're like, Beverly's just really weak because she goes on to marry an abusive man. And I'm like, look here, that's real life. A lot of abused young women go on to be re-victimized.
0: Well, yeah, like the cycle of violence is a a very real thing. And I think Mm. if somebody hasn't been through it or hasn't done the research on it, uh, you know that they, they'll make claims like like that, but those yeah. claims are wrong and dangerous, right? Like, there those are dangerous uh, things to to think because oh, uh,
1: definitely because it can happen to anybody. I mean, I just that just has one thing that has always bothered me about the criticism of Beverly's character. Oh, she's just kind of weak because she goes on and she winds up married to this abusive man, and I'm like, this is mimics real life and like. Your strength is not. You can't equate that to someone being revictimized and stuff. It's, right. <sighs> definitely. Like,
0: definitely, it's uh, it's 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 one of those things where it's like, guys, you can learn empathy and like learn about how how these things happen because, you know, it's it's one of those things where early in life, that's the only way you knew love, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the only way you had. Uh, any positive emotions even with the horribleness right and, and it's 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 the association that really kind of
1: and king on. lays that out in the book like beverly that's the that's the only way she knows how to process like love and affection almost and Oof, it's just yeah it's kind of weird to me that somebody would read this book and not just have the reaction oh Beverly's just kind of weak because she marries a-, a man just like her father and I'm like honey this is this is real life right here uh,
0: <laughs> yeah and I think even 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 removed from that though like Beverly uh, is, is an incredibly strong character in that she uh, you know she's she's like one of the most smart characters in the book like sorry in, in the in the movie uh, I'm sure in the book as well but she's really insightful and she really is like a leader Ah, uh, she takes on a huge leadership role and is just ah uh, is very kind when uh, you know, she's going through these horrible things, and she's just like is very kind to like Ben's character and and everything like that. So there's a lot of kindness and strength in her that I think is kind of undersold, which is yeah.
1: Great. And one thing that I, I love that the m- movie got that the book that was in the book, Beth's just, she's kind of their glue. She ho- really holds them together. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. In, in so many, in so many ways. Um, what, so I, I, I was talking to one of my friends who is a huge fan of the book and she was not huge on the fact that she kind of feels that in the end last act of the movie, bev is a little bit of a damsel in distress and i was curious as to what you thought of
1: that okay i actually wrote this down in my notes because i think that almost in a way i think that that part gets oversimplified because i think it's almost too easy to say bev is a damsel in distress um which of course people process stuff in a different way um when they're watching it but here's how i view that scene that just that whole um plot point because bev she's taken by pennywise because think about it she's the first one that really just kind of conquers her fear and faces her fear she's the threat right. right in and of itself because and think about it like when they're in the house on knee she's the first one to ever strike it she just puts a like fence stake through pennywise's head and i think it knows that she is its biggest threat so i think that's honestly it in self-preservation mode and not really just oh let's make bev a damsel in distress i think that it makes sense but i think at the end of the day, Bev's not really a damsel in distress because, I mean, everybody needs help sometimes. But at the end of it, she's right in there fighting with them. She's not like completely incapacitated. And I right, think almost right. yeah, it, it,
0: yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point. That is a that is a tremendous point. Um, I think uh, it, it's fascinating in the fact of like. She's not afraid of it that's why he mm-hmm. he can he incapacitates her he can't eat her because he feeds on fear and she just I don't know yep. if she he would get no sustenance or she would taste terrible whatever it is he doesn't want to eat her basically well I guess he can't right like is it is the way that the creature works is he cannot feed on you unless you're afraid?
1: that's the thing that's one of the things there's a lot about it that is just kind of left up and open but here's the thing i think that honestly with bev i think that's one of the few times well probably the first time now that i think about it that it's had somebody that wasn't afraid of it so i honestly that's going to trigger fear in it and it's gonna get desperate
0: yeah that's a that's a great point and i i mean there's a certain uh tendency to like overanalyze villains mm-hmm. in movies right like uh I, you know especially when you get to certain portions of the internet when they're like what's its powers how powerful <laughs> is it what is the strength ratio for it lifting up a bus and it's just like it's it's more of a metaphor, right? Like I understand that mm-hmm. it, that is yeah. it is much more than much more a metaphor than he is anything else, um, about just letting your fears conquer you. So I don't wanna get too bogged down in his power levels. Yeah, so
1: because I saw when it chapter two came out, a lot of reviews that were like, Well, they don't set any ground rules. There's like no constraints. I'm like, this is in the book. These are just kids that are going in blind they're just going in blind almost each time they fight it. And as you said, it's a metaphor. And it's like, you're not supposed to think too hard on the power level and the constraints of the character. Uh, You're just, you're going too far with
0: it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There is a tendency to kind of get bogged down in the weeds, but I do think, that it also it it still works because it's basically like what if you're how however afraid of him you are is how powerful he is essentially. Yeah. And when when they're you know and, and especially in it chapter two he gets the most powerful when they go through that whole the ritual of chewed and they fail. And yeah. They're all terrified because they thought they were free of it and this was the end and now they're all they're all terrified because it didn't work and therefore bam it's the most powerful it's been.
1: You're enter you're entering like full panic mode at that point, and yeah, that's the thing. Um, like the ritual of Chud was always going to be really difficult to adapt, but it's it's a battle of wills. So I think in a weird way, uh, in both uh showdowns, it was a battle of wills either way in both of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, especially, especially when we get into the second chapter, we'll talk yeah. all about that one. Um, <laughs> I guess, oh, I guess it's time to tackle the mullet in the room.
1: <sighs>
0: <laughs> Henry Bowers and his crew. Uh, you know, there is a tendency when people talk about King is that they go, "These bullies are ridiculous. There's no way bullies are this crazy." And then you look into real life and you look into multiple cases. And yeah, Yeah. yeah, there are people like Henry Bowers out there. uh, And that's not an over exaggeration. No. There are are people like that in the world. It's like one of those things of where if you've, I mean, I mean, it happens in big cities as well, but it's a real, Mm -hmm. his character is a real small town
1: type of character.
0: And if you've lived in a small town, you go, I know like five guys like that.
1: Yeah, like it's like. Do you want me to make a list for you? You can go look them up and meet them yourself.
0: <laughs> you don't want to, but you can. <laughs> Believe it's like, me, these these people exist, and it's real. Probably.
1: Gosh, yeah. Like I'm like, no, this is real. To I, I almost feel like people that have those kind of uh, comments have. I was like, you can almost. This is just for the book the movies anything it related i was like this is a litmus test for if you had a good childhood or not based (laughs) on yeah
0: um let's just say i yeah yeah i can uh i can attest to that because you know watching watching this i was like oh man there were like confrontations for me in high school where like i had a very similar type of guys who like got in the face and like were throwing rocks at me right like you know this if you're from a small town like there's chances are you've had some experience where there's just like a group of kids who oh like
1: there and it's almost like i just i don't understand how you can just sit back and be like this is cartoonish stuff sounds like no this is very 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 almost too close to home in some places and you're just sitting there like oh this is painful yeah. painful oh,
0: painful painful is the right word another thing that i it, it, it's one of those things where it shows very little of his dad but it shows just enough to know exactly how he came to be like yeah. you oh when his when he one I, you know, as a cat owner and a cat lover, I was like, oh, God, don't Mm -hmm. shoot the cat. Like,
1: I forgot. (laughs) Like, when all his bullies are, like, getting
0: the cat ready, I was like, oh, no, not the kitty. Save the kitty. Um, But then I go, save the kitty. And then his dad comes out and starts shooting the ground at him to, like, (laughs) make him, oh, my God. I was like, oh, God. (laughs) What what have I done?
1: In the book, you can make that same, like, straight line from Henry Bowers' dad to Henry Bowers. And that's why... Henry Bowers is evil and awful. Yeah. Because in the book, in the book, um, there's, uh, it really goes into depth about Henry Bowers and his background with poor Mike Hanlon, um, and all that just awful, just racially motivated bullying that Mike endures at the hands of Henry Bowers. And actually, um, henry's dad wound up at one point like killing mike's dad's chickens and the uh law enforcement there when they they had a sheriff that was actually you know decent made him pay uh how much the chickens would have cost and that just kind of set a vendetta in place and henry is just taking up that mantle of uh Revenge, uh, so to speak, and um, I just think it's interesting when you mention the cat. Um, Henry does have a history of like just violence against animals in the books because he kills Mike's dog, actually. Um, and it, yes, it's so sinister how he does it, too, because he. The dog is named Mr. Chips. He gains Mr. Chips' just confidence and his trust, and he feeds Mr. Chips poisoned meat, and he sits and watches as Mr. Chips dies. And it's one of the worst things I've ever... Like, you're just sitting there, and you're like, how just deep down evil do you have to be to not only just... Uh, be this awful just unapologetically racist but also you're so unapologetically and evil and racist that you not only gain this kid's dog's uh trust but you poison it and then you watch it die a slow awful death and i mean that might have been going too far but i wish that they had worked that flashback in at some point because it does lead lead up to the rock war because he tells henry tells mike that he killed his dog and mike just understandably goes off
0: right yeah yeah that yeah oh my god i can i can only imagine like you just you, you just like lose it and that's when that's when the rock war would start um i think uh I, again that's another thing where if you if you read that and go oh that's over the top and that's too crazy and then like if uh, yeah if you do any research on the like you know yeah like most serial killers like there's a yep. lot of that in the past when they do any interviews like animal violence is a real mm-hmm. it a real indicator of uh like future uh, yeah. issues and is a big big indicator that oh this person needs help like if you see someone hurting a nail, it's like oh no this person needs help
1: like right like, away if you had like if anybody had any doubts that Henry Bowers wasn't like completely over the edge with just any kind of just evil he at that point you're just like this kid is just completely irredeemable period
0: right he, right he... so I guess you mentioned the rock war What do what do you think about the rock war because it was one of those moments where um it was a moment where like when Richie like yells rock war and then like the music starts and they're like throwing the rocks and there was a moment where I'm like oh this is a little over the top but then I was like no wait I just like this like I get it yes! it's a little over the top but I'm also just really enjoying this at the same point so it's like it's yeah
1: it's fun. just the in the book I love the rock war I love it in the movie and I just I just kind of love the facet of it that these bullied kids come upon this kid that's also bullied and they're like Hey, we've got to protect this kid. This is this kid's one of us. And then they just start throwing rocks and it it's just I was like that's just cinematic just gold almost because <laughs> like watching that in the theater and hearing everybody just start just roaring with laughter it was magic just the first time seeing the rock war I loved every bit of it, and I still love it, and I just, I, it's, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very true, very true. Um,
0: it's, yeah, like, I think that's probably a good discussion about part one, I mean, you know, you could sit there and talking about it, about it all day long. Mm, Um, Definitely. um, I think it's it's fascinating in the idea that uh, just to talk about it and how the fears of the kids kind of like equal out what it is able to do. I do think it's kind of fascinating that, yes, there is a whole bunch of 80s references in the mm-hmm. powers of it, but there's like also the 50s stuff kind of sneaks in. yeah. Still. Because I saw, like, direct correlations to, especially in the final battle when he's got the, like, pincers and he's, like, going at yep. people. I'm like, oh, that's, like, the Deadly Mantis from, like, 1954. Yeah. And then, like, he's, like, the mummy, which is, like, you know, classic Universal style. What's,
1: what's really neat about the mummy part is that's actually a nod to the book. Because that's how Ben first sees it in the book. And I, I thought a lot about this. I was like, most of the changes honestly makes sense in the context of the universe and the book but also if they couldn't work it in there there's like little nods to stuff so you just kind of get um it's just kind of there's a lot there's a lot of richness going on behind the scenes there and you can really tell that they paid attention to this book and that they love this book (laughs) right
0: right exactly um are are are
1: there any things about the 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 first movie that you don't like? Well, I honestly okay. My biggest issue is Mike. I wish we had gotten more yeah. Mike. Um, I wanted more of Mike's story, and I don't like that they had that they had already killed off Mike's parents because Mike's relationship with his dad is literally one of the most positive parent-child relationships in the movie. I, I mean, in the book, Mike has such a loving father and mike's dad just doesn't sugarcoat stuff he's he's an amazing person an amazing character and i really honestly wish Um, we had got gotten more of mike's dad's stories because um there's the black spot which um it was a nightclub like a little hangout for african-american people in dairy and uh, Dick Halloran, Dick Halloran from The Shining, is actually part of this story, also, because um, they served in the army together. Mike's dad and Dick Halloran, um, yeah. And uh, it's burnt down by like the Northern—I can't remember what King calls it, but it's like Derry's version of the KKK, and. This is 100% motivated by uh, it, kind of harnessing and taking, uh, taking um, control of just those pressure points and that evil that's already there in Derry for its gain.
0: Right, right. Who, who is Leroy? Like in the uh, when we first get introduced to Mike, is Leroy like his
1: uncle or something? I think um. that's supposed to be like his grandfather but
0: oh okay we really only get one scene with him like we we really only get like the the one brief introduction to leroy mm-hmm. where he's like killing uh showing him how to kill uh kill the animals uh which i was kind of i was kind of sad about because you know that he's uh, played by uh stephen williams and uh, mm-hmm. i i love that actor so i really kind of wish we would have got a little bit more with him yeah, um, But I did, I did think it was kind of uh, amazing production design is that you actually see a photo of him uh, in Mike's office in part two. Uh, he's, he's, he's got that. And I, there's a lot more of Mike in part two versus part one. Yes. Um, and I think there's a lot to talk about, talk about there. So yeah, I, I definitely agree that we, we get the least about Mike and uh, you know, we don't get too many scenes of just Mike because, like, we almost mm-hmm. get like little scenes of every other kid. Yeah, and then Mike specifically is a bit uh, kind of like joins a- afterwards and kind of is yeah. only really introduced by the violence being inflicted on him by yep. Bowers, right? So, mm-hmm. did did in in the book does like Bowers have such a like? Oh, he looks like he's dead. Moment, because <laughs> like he like falls down and goes like deep. I don't. How does Bowers get taken out in part one in the book?
1: Um, actually, it's like he doesn't real, uh really play much of a part in that uh, because he kind of just. They're going into the cistern. They're going into the sewers, and he's like just screaming down at them. He's trying to kill them and uh he looks down at him and he's like i'm gonna kill you and then richie smarts off to him and he goes down in the sewers and he gets lost so that's Uh, kind of how he's taken he's taken care of I, i i i'm not gonna lie i like the dramatics of how he was taken out in the movie not gonna lie that yeah, no. Sad. I mean, it's a it's, it's a very bad. good
0: moment, um, and it was. I remember seeing it in the theaters. Uh, I I knew that he was like Bowers was supposed to come back. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, are they changing it up? Like, is, is Bowers dead? Because <laughs> 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 they really do gotta make it seem like seem like he is. Uh, and apparently, some there's some more deleted scenes where that you get a little bit more of like Bowers interacting with like the dead members of his. Oh group. yeah,
1: like just. Oh my god, and like, in the book, King goes off, like, he develops, like, each one of, like, Bowers' crew, and, like, there's ones that are more twisted than Bowers himself, and I'm like, oh my god, these kids are just awful, period.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like an awful group of kids coming together to be awful.
1: (laughs) Yes! And it's like, and as you said, people are like, oh no, that can't happen, and it's like, it happens. I've seen it.
0: (laughs) Too many times, too many uh, times, truly. Oh, yes.
1: yeah. Really. Um. Yeah. So I guess
0: that that's part one. Uh, do you have any like final thoughts about part one before we kind of move on to part two?
1: Oh my gosh, I actually found the. I, I actually have my book right here, and I actually I highlighted okay. this while I was reading it. It's where Henry's shouting down at them, uh, as they like go into the sewers and he's like, you'll die down there. And then Richie looks up and goes, prove it. Ooh,
0: I love that. <laughs> okay. That's amazing. I kind of wish that was, uh, yeah, that was, that because
1: Rich, I was like, Richie's just so on just always, even in the book. So, uh. As for final thoughts about chapter one, I was like, yeah, it, it has its issues. Every movie's going to have some issues and some blind spots. But I feel like in the context of the the book and the universe in general and the characters, everything just fit. Um, the characters, it's like, just when you read the book, it's just really fascinating how much they are like they are in the movie.
0: Right, right. I think um there's so much richness to part one um and i think there's some real good scares in part one Mm -hmm. real good real good scares um i think that opening shot with georgie like that opening sequence one of the best horror sequences maybe because maybe ever to
1: be honest maybe you don't know what you're gonna get because you're like how far are they gonna take this And then you're just sitting there and then you're horrified at just Pennywise just taking this kid's arm off. And then you see little Georgie and his nub and he's just trying so hard to get away. And you're just sitting there and you're just kind of almost slack jawed at the sight of it because it's just, you didn't know how far they were going to take it. And then you're like, oh, they're going to take it all the way. And it is it's one of the best like horror openings and sequences that like if i think they solid like in that moment i think andy muschetti really did solidify himself as like horror horror director it was awesome
0: yeah very much uh very much an awesome sequence and i think uh i think it worked better than the original miniseries one and i thought and i think the original yeah. miniseries one is is a great scene uh, just because, again, Tim Curry does give a great performance as Pennywise. Again, it's a very different version of Pennywise. Uh, I, would, I would equate it to Pennywise in, like, the miniseries is that, like, long-working, carny clown that's, like, had a lot of cigarettes in his life. Yeah. And, um, and, this, and this version um, by Bill Sarsgaard is the more agile, like, actually doing circus acts clowns.
1: Oh um, yeah,
0: both both clowns are things that if you've ever been to a circus, you'll see both. Right? Yeah, like they're both
1: there are two. But... It's so interesting to see the two different takes on Pennywise because it's like same character but two different actors, two totally different interpretations.
0: Yeah, a wholly, uh, wholly different interpretations. But yeah, so I guess that is part one, uh, and let's go on to it, chapter two. Uh, now, It Chapter 2 is, is a movie where I really, really liked it on the second watch. Mm-hmm. I think uh, for me, maybe the first watch, I did not give it as much credit as it deserved and did not really get into it as much as I, I should have and just kind of rode with the flow as it goes on. Um, for like for whatever reason, the first time I watched it, there were certain sequences that were not as effective towards me at the time and i think maybe i was just in a having a bad day when i watch it because i watch it again now
1: that happens a lot yeah
0: it it (laughs) does it does it's it it, people don't really uh equate mood to how a movie will play for you but believe me it it, it'll make a difference it'll make a difference definitely because, because the i i think the the two scenes where pennywise in this movie uh scares kids who are not like who are not the main cast Mm-hmm. Um, I for whatever reason I didn't think they were as effective the first time I watched it and then I watched it now and I was like oh these are like two of the best like again these are right up there with that Georgie scene from part one yeah in terms of just how undeniably effective the scares are and the way that it's filmed and just the malice of yeah
1: of like watching the scene with the little girl Vicky oh just my god. oh my god you're just sitting there and she's so sweet and you're just like please just some, and you you just have this just undeniable feeling of dread, just kind of like bubbling up, and you're like, oh no, no.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness, it's such a such a scary scene, uh, and I think it. I think there is some. So one of the things that kind of still throws me off about this movie is the de aging of the kids. I don't because. Yep. The way the way that some of their faces look, uh, I noticed it most in in Richie in Finn yeah. Wolfhard's de aging, um, and I guess I, that's like it's again that's one of those things of where I think I have w- since watching like Stranger Things, right? Like I've literally seen yep. this kid grow up. So, like, yeah. I have seen his face change. So that might be why it, it's yeah. the biggest, like, jarring moment for me is to see his de-aging. Because I, I think the rest of them are actually done pretty well. Yeah. Jeremy Ray Taylor looks a little smooth. I don't know what yeah. it is. Like, he looks a little a little off. But um, that one was the one I noticed the most.
1: I just but, think it's really funny because I was reading about the de-aging process. And the, uh, Andy Moosheddy was like, these kids have like aged like crazy over the past couple years and he said and then there's Sophia, who just pretty much looks the same
0: yeah exactly i was going to say because she is uh easily like you know the the one where i noticed it the least because you know i guess they didn't have to do as much for for Sophia, uh which is surprising i
1: was like she's she's i was like she's already got some great genes going on i was like like it almost makes perfect sense that they cast Jessica Chastain as Beverly, which was my pick from the time they announced that there was gonna be an It movie. Andy Muschietti was gonna be directing it. And I was like, this was before they'd even cast the kids. I was like, We gotta have Jessica Chastain as Beverly, but she she always looks the same too. So I was like It's
0: true. It's true. It's like, a <laughs> it's really good casting. I think, you know, that that smooths in right to talking about uh the kids as adults, um, and yep. uh, so like, man, they did a really good job casting. I like again, this is one of those things where. Um, I guess I was a little bit critical when the announcements got made of who was going to play it. Not Jessica Chastain, because Jessica Chastain, fits, yeah. like, fits that role so well. But I was a little bit like, ah, oh, James McAvoy is too hunky. But then I was like, I watch it, as a kid no, like, it just, he just looks like a, d- like, he doesn't, it's not as extreme as, say, uh, in Split, where he's, like, literally shirtless and, like, screaming, yeah. right? It's like, he's just, like, wearing normal clothes. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, He's like, such a good actor that it doesn't really
1: I actually wrote down like one of my my friend and I were watching it and this what she said aloud last night I'm still not convinced chosen and Isaiah are not the same person <laughs> And I actually wrote my note down that the casting was just so good and the acting was so good that it almost didn't feel like two actors playing the same character. It was just like, this is one person. It was so natural.
0: And I think there was a lot of uh, sit-downs with the kids and their Mm -hmm. future selves. Because Bill Hader, I know, uh, spent a lot of time with Finn Wolfhard because there was a whole bunch of interviews where they interviewed the two of them And they chatted a lot about trying to capture and maintain the same character and and the discussions that were had to kind of, like, keep continuity and keep everything the same. And I was like, oh, yeah, and it fits because, like, Bill Hader is Mm -hmm. so good as Richie. Like, it it works so well. That's Uh, the thing. And and again, minor point about uh, him. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, I was just going to say that in costuming, um, he is wearing the exact same outfit that the lead character in Nightmare on Elm Street yes! wears. And I was like, what? Somebody pointed that out after the movie had come. And then I watch it now. I was like, that is the exact same outfit.
1: There's so. just there's just so many, like, cool little things. And I feel like this is one of those movies that I'm like, it does get better each watch. And there's just, it's just, it blows my mind, like, Oh my God, Like that, you notice that, and there's just the attention to detail with like the little things is just the minutiae is astonishing.
0: yeah, and it's and it's those things where it's a it's a good reference, but it doesn't come at at the expense of the story, yeah, which is which is a real clever clever way to do it uh in that it's just a very subtle thing you watch it again and it's like oh that's a cool tidbit but the story it, itself still works
1: yeah it doesn't so, like beat you over the head with something it's just something really subtle and there's just so much like just subtle little stuff in there um one of my favorite things that i noticed was when i uh, stands in the bathtub and you just look he still has like those scars on the side of his face
0: damn yeah like that's yeah that's like an extra extra level yeah um, yeah oof. I, I gotta say out of all of the casts uh, everybody who like came back and is their older self i gotta say my favorite one of them um is gotta be james ransone as yes a, because he's so good in this movie like he's so good and i'm i'm really amazed that like he is not a Uh, a bigger actor i mean he's he's oftentimes he's kind of like a bit part and bit yeah and things i think of like he's in the first sinister and he Mm -hmm. literally plays his characters his name is deputy so and so and like um it's so nice to see him play a named character that has like (laughs) an impact on the story
1: is and And, um, my friend and i as we were watching it we were like james renson has some explaining to do because i was like i'm not totally unconvinced that jack dylan grazer is not his son at this point right right and like i remember reading an interview that um they were watching the first one in the theater and james's brother is like that kid looks like james (laughs) (laughs) and i was like do we have in a weird cosmic sense James Ransom's brother to thank for this casting because he put it out there in that moment.
0: Right, right. Like, there's just so much. There's so much to, to that in particular. And, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't mean to rag on the miniseries again. Uh, but the miniseries is not as one to one. Like, right, like they're just no. like it's no, it's not as one to one as these, no. as this one is uh, in any stretch. Um, and I, and I do think that this gives a lot more to Mike's character, which is Mm -hmm. nice in in this one. Um, we still don't, again like, I kind of, we get a little bit of him finding, uh, finding, uh, you know, his token, but we don't get as, we still don't get at enough of that, which I really wanted from Mike. But I think we still got a good portion of him and I know Mm -hmm. when it was running like the run-up to it there was a lot of like rumors about what they were doing with Mike and some people were really worried because I think somewhere they reported that he was like a drug addict like somewhere someone reported like in the production that he was a drug addict in the movie and it's like no he's not like no he does I think he does like I don't even know I think it's like peyote basically like they do that once in the movie and you know That's just a scene.
1: I mean, after I read that report myself, I was like, well, it kind of makes, I mean, honestly, you'd be shocked that there wasn't one of them that fell into a drug addiction because I was like, these are deeply traumatized children. I was like, that kind of makes sense. I would be interested to see how they did that. But thankfully, they didn't. I'm kind of glad they didn't. But I was like, I just hope it's handled tastefully.
0: (laughs) yeah exactly exactly it's like one of those things where like you as long as you handle it tastefully and you do a good story like it, it maybe it could have worked but yeah I, I just i am glad that they really did kind of just make mike like uh, this kind of he's he's the he is the key like he's yeah. the bring them all together he's the one who takes on the burden of remembering
1: and that's i think about that a lot and i've said this before in some of my writings and in reading the book it's like almost like mike becomes the de facto leader of them as an adult like i know they still look to bill but it's mike that's doing the big heavy lifting there
0: oh 100 100 percent. like I mike mean, is really like yeah. he does everything like he he brings he brings up the ritual he brings up everything they need to do to get the ritual mm-hmm. he brings them all back into town he sits and has that like The Jade of the Orient scene um, is all led by him. And, um, you know, at the end, I think uh, Bill ends up leading the charge, but not out of a sense of leadership, uh, out of a sense of he's going to do it himself. And then Mike is like, no, we're not letting him do it himself. We all have to go. And I think uh, I think that was a really good moment to show that, like, yeah, he's still in charge. Like, really, like Mike is the is the leader.
1: It's like they almost reflexively looked to Bill because that that was the, their leadership as a child. But, you know, Mike, Mike's definitely is adult leader. And I was like, I will fight to the end on that one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like a, a hundred percent. Um, I'm really interested to kind of hear what you think thought about um you know the opening scene because the opening scene uh is very difficult to watch and that's the scene where you know there is a oh hate my crime god that we yeah like, witness on screen um and you know it was it was one of those things where i saw it in the theater and i was like oh my god do we i don't know if i want to watch and go through yeah this. but then but then you gotta, you gotta. It's again, it's one of those things where you go like, yeah, uh, glad that you have the luxury of trying to de- detach yourself from mm-hmm. this because you know yeah. that's privilege because you know this is the thing that is still happening. Mm-hmm. And again, if you're from a small town and they even get a whiff that you're a little outside of the normal and yep. that your like sexuality is diverse. Yep. Uh, they are going to punish you and they are going to do things like this. Like, this is not an over-exaggeration of small towns. Exactly.
1: Like- and I, I, it was actually inspired by a real-life hate crime in Maine that just really affected King. And he was like, I have to incorporate this somehow in the book because it's just, it's so horrific
0: yeah yeah i mean it's it's one of those things like you know um it worked it would have worked in the book and it and it still holds true now unfortunately because you know like uh one of the things that you really kind of get from the story is like things may have seemed to change on the surface but there's still there's still a lot of similarities and just uh man's uh cruelty to to each other so yeah, you, you uh, when we were sp- speaking earlier in the pre-show, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that you had seen this movie many times <laughs> uh, in theaters. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm going to imagine you have quite a detailed thought on it. So yeah. I just can't get, get your general thoughts on the episode, uh, on the movie itself. And then, uh, you know, how, uh, how you came to see it so many times. It's
1: in the a, oh my God. It's like, it's, it's its own journey. I saw it the Thursday that it, that before like the little like you know they're cute little like pre-showings because thank goodness there's like they've kind of we've kind of progressed as a society past the midnight showing um so it's like oh yeah we have like the cute little preview showings like at seven at at, at night on the thursday so we had bought tickets like way in advance and uh, a friend of mine and i went And then I went twice the next Friday, one time with my parents when it opened because uh, we saw the first one together the day it opened. And I was like, this is special. We're all off work. We should go. And we did. And then I had um, tickets later that night to go watch it in IMAX with the same friend because we were like, we're just like gonna go see what this kind of experience is and of course like malco cinemas has its own like little knockoff of imax and i had never seen anything like that so i was like okay we'll we'll experience that and then the next day um my family friend's daughter um i callie she'll probably she'll probably be listening to this because she loves it um her and her cousin um they couldn't get her cousin in because her cousin's like 14 and they were like we're close do you want to come as i was like hey we'll go we'll make an event of it
0: amazing amazing um did did it did it continue to work as you uh, as you moved on, like did did uh, did it get better? Did it get worse? Like, what what was it like? Kind of seeing it so many times in such a short.
1: Honestly, got better. I, I mean, I wasn't never not excited to go see it another time. I mean, I was exhausted. I feel like I, I was like a good portion of the box office that weekend, um, <laughs> in one way or another. Uh, so it was it was fun. It was really fun.
0: Right, right. And uh, so this this one has, um, like we talked about in, in part one, part two has a much wider scope in what it's trying to talk about and what it's really, really going for at the end of the day. Um, how do you think that, having read the book, how do you think that it de- this version deals with the more out there, wacky metaphysical stuff that is in the book? Um, you think it handles it as well as it could, or would you like to have seen, uh, the turtle? I
1: literally wrote down about, about how desperately I wanted to see the turtle, but, but I liked all the little, excuse me, I liked all the little nods to the turtle, but I would have loved to have seen the turtle, but I think that Honest to God would have, might have been a little too much for some of the, like, the lay moviegoers, because I feel like they would have been like, God's a turtle? What? <laughs> if you <laughs> my religion has taught me nothing. what do you mean? God's eternal. I was like, I think they did a good job trying to simplify that whole idea and the ritual of Chud because I was like it's wild the ritual is wild at the book. Yeah,
0: yeah, I bet I bet uh, like what what are some of the what are some of the wild Just, differences? I
1: mean, there you are, like, when they're a kid, uh, Bill's going to, like, this kind of, like, nether region in his mind, and he meets Turtle God and Maturin, and Maturin is there, and uh, Maturin pretty much tells him about the Ritual of Chud, which is, it's a battle of wills. And um, it gets, it's pretty, it's pretty much, it takes place in the mind, that that battle so they had to find a way to trans try to translate all of that as a, a writer myself i i would probably have been like how am i going to translate r- the ritual of should in a way that if somebody might be able to understand it because it's one of just those things that i was like oh no yeah
0: i uh, yeah, I can't imagine trying to adapt it as as they talked about. I think in the miniseries, they just completely don't touch it at all. Um, uh, but talking about the Ritual of chewed uh, a question that I had for you, and I was interested in your opinion, how do you think it treats uh, the Native American portion of it? Um, like, they don't really get into it too well, and I, I'm always a little bit worried that, like, Sometimes their portrayals are like too wired in mysticism and that kind of stuff, and they're used for uh, plot devices by many character, like by many writers. Um, when you know, a lot of it is just stuff that they make up, and they go, "Oh yes, this has always been a part of their society," and like it's like the, it, for example, like the biggest, uh, the biggest trope, like the Indian burial ground uh, being a reason for something being haunted. Uh, and that, that trope in itself, uh, is, is like a lot of historians are like, that's not true. Um, in many cases, like uh, their, uh, funerary rites, uh, are not the same as ours. Uh, and especially like, uh, the, there's so many different cultures that deal with it in so many different ways that no, there are not a whole bunch of Indian burial grounds that are going to haunt you with ghosts. Um, and, um, this one doesn't like, they don't do anything like outwardly racist uh i would say but they they do kind of just admire them in mysticism a bit and i was interested to see what you thought of that
1: the whole idea of like them having that experience seeing it and where it come from they did base that the children had read about um native uh rituals and stuff and that's where they got the idea to try to use that and um it's the infamous smoke hole scene and it's Mike, it's Mike and Richie who actually see it coming to Earth. And I I mean, I'm glad we kind of got a version of that. But I would have loved to have seen the wood. Like the book, really. Um, because it's just, it's a very interesting scene because it's the kids taking what they've read and it kind of bypasses anything that, could be too terribly insensitive just kind of you right. because right. it's the kids just kind of they've been reading and they're just kind of experimenting with anything at this point because they don't really have a place to go it almost seems they don't know what they what they're gonna do they're just grasping at straws
0: right right which is uh, which I guess is kind of more true to what so much of uh yeah. part two really is right because like a lot of it is them grasping at straws and trying to figure out what exactly is it how to f- defeat it and i i do appreciate that a lot of it is left up to interpretation and a lot of it is left up to imagination like you don't really get a full backstory of it uh there's like hints at the scene with beverly where she gets her token Um, and there's that crazy sequence with, the you know, with the, the woman, the older woman who is like drinking the tea and, oh my God, such a scary scene, uh, and a wild, but there's those brief hints that like, uh, it took the form of Pennywise because he was kind of like inspired by this like sadistic clown who existed back in Derry back in the day. So I, I thought little, little things like that are, are, really fascinating. Um, it reminds me a lot. So, Something uh, which is is pretty referenced in in the movie, uh, but is also like a big thing uh, in the book, is there's this idea that like I think that this series has a lot in common with Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, like and the idea of Freddy Krueger, um, and what's fascinating is that it has much better setting out of rules. Uh, But I think that uh, in when New Nightmare was released in 93, the way that they envisioned Freddy Krueger actually sounds very similar to how in the book uh, it is, uh, you know, it it is displayed in that this is like a primordial being. Uh, I mean, in this movie, he's talking about how he's the eater of worlds, he's the eater of worlds. Um, And he pretty much just, just found a form that it liked and took that on to be its persona for all of these years. Uh, obviously, his true form is not a clown, but he has found uh, you know, a propensity and a delight in, in using that to scare children, which is just, fascinating.
1: I was going to talk about that, because in the book, the spider is as close as to what our minds as humans can actually process its form, because the Deadlights is actually it in its purest form.
0: Right, right. The Deadlights are fascinating, because you get an idea of what they are, but you also don't have any idea what they
1: are. I don't think people think, like, if you were realistically in a situation like that, you would be just as lost. You wouldn't know the rules of the game. It would just be something just utterly terrifying, because this is an ancient being not of our world, um, and you don't. There, it's like there's almost no rules because you don't know them. You're just feeling yeah. around in the dark.
0: Yeah, if anything, that's like a more realistic version of what these monster movies would be like. I mean, especially if something came from like a metaphysical realm, like uh, you know, in movies, they like there's often point where someone sits down and be like, "All right, here are the rules for this creature. Here's exactly how he works." And it's, it's it's more realistic in the way of like, yeah, you know what, you're going to find out how it works uh, eventually, but most of the people who have gotten this far have been killed by this monster. So it's like, it's not like you have like that grizzled old monster hunter who can give you the rules. Because uh, in real life, uh, there would be no grizzled monster hunters because they would probably be killed before the monster.
1: And in the book, Bike actually does like this great, his- actually like historical work. Um, he goes around and he gets second hand of like some of these like weird events that happened from like the older population of dairy and he he chronicles it he chronicles it all and he talks about how he thinks it was tied to this um, how it took advantage of this at a certain event and this certain person and how it's just always been here and just that part of the book and i know that you couldn't work all that into the movie but it's just such a fascinating read because mike's voice really comes through and you get to know mike better through his search and research of all of these happenings but you get kind of a background on it and what it has done over the years but you don't really get an idea of any of the rules there are no rules it's just yeah I, I feel like if they ever
0: do tackle this story again in in some form um I think there's like a real fascinating just like history of dairy type story they could tell and they could even like have you know uh have it uh like i stay on mustafa as you know mike kind of like introduce it and like pretty much teach a history lesson and they can do like an interqual almost where they really talk about what is dairy and what because there seems to be so many stories that um you know that is detailed in the book but you can never put into an adaptation
1: i would love a like series that just delves into dairy as a whole
0: yeah, yeah. I think it's just rich. Like, I mean, like you know, the uh, with how popular these movies are, because these movies were huge money makers. Like some of the biggest R-rated horror movies ever. Um, and uh, I am really kind of surprised that no one kind of took the took the lead. Now, hey, they still could, right? Like, it's one of those ideas. Like, uh, you know, it Chapter Two was just last year. I know twenty twenty has felt like it's uh, been twenty years all it's it's out it feels like it's been 27 years it feels like it feels like anyone should be showing back up again because of how long this year
1: like the timeline in the movie lines up with like 2016 when all those weird clown sightings actually happened and i was like oh my gosh of course
0: Of course, of course, it's all it's all connected. I I would, you know, I always like kind of think another fun fun idea would just to be, just to like I don't they don't even need to fight it again. Like it can be gone. Like they can be effective, But like I would almost like a little short story by King about these characters meeting up and they're like
1: seven. I have thought about that too. I would love like a like a little epilogue almost of because the book leaves it very open-ended what happens to everybody because yeah ben and bev leave and uh mike's like okay i think that they're you know banging uh <laughs> it's pretty much how mike's like if they're not having sex now they're gonna have sex he's just like this is a done deal and that's all you get on their characters and it's just so funny to me because it's like Mike's just sitting there and he's like, they come and see him before they head out and they're heading out together. And he's like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is going to be a thing. And then the only really definite that you get is kind of like Bill and Audra, um, Bill's wife, uh, like she comes out of like her deadlights induced, like, uh, like haze and like they go on and they live like a semi-happy normal life but everybody else you just you just don't know
0: did do, do do you feel like uh maybe audra should have been uh been in the movie i know in the book um you deal with audra and then doesn't bev like abusive uh husband somehow factor into the dairy stuff
1: it Does um pennywise actually it does t- actually take like uh control of him and uses him uh to help lure them down into the uh sewers once more by taking audra um i can understand why because there's just so much that they chose to just focus chiefly on the losers and um erase that subplot but i actually wrote my notes i like audra in the book she's a perfectly likable character she's interesting and i think that honestly they could have wound out giving her more depth and stuff too um, I would have liked to have seen more of Audra, but I also understand that there are just lots of constraints there.
0: Right. It's, it, it is one of those things where it's, uh, you know, I think that there is a very tight focus and they remove a lot of the fat and, and, you know, from a book perspective, it's like, Oh, I would have loved to see that. But it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, really affect the movie. Cause I think the movie really does a good job of standing on its own because you really just kind of get this idea that now it's the losers and this is their story and they are the ones who are kind of trapped within it. Um, and it, and it works really well from, from that perspective, I think. Um, what do you think about, um, so I know in interviews, they claimed that the idea that Bill could not finish a book properly was not like they have said that it's not a reference to King. And I'm like, I don't know how, That could not be a reference to King, but
1: okay. I think they're being, like, really coy with that because they know we know, and it's kind of like, wink, wink. Because it's definitely, there's some meta on King's writing and his endings in there, and it's so hilarious. Yeah,
0: it's hilarious. And the the character that is played by King, because King has a cameo in this, literally says, ending sucks. And you're like, dude... Like that's a hundred percent a story from King's life because like he's like oh if you want to sign this and like they're like no I hated the ending
1: yeah and then there's like Stephen King just there just dragging himself and I was like I think that's the best like. Out of, like, cameos, I think that's one of the best cameos ever because you just have Stephen King dragging himself and he's just so cool with it. And I was like, dang, let's give Stephen King the Oscar for just that small.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's, it's one of the things about King in general is that, um, you know, he's never afraid to make fun of himself. He seems to, <laughs> like, there are, th- like, he is kind of like the textbook example of, like, a well-meaning author who occasionally messes up right? Like, yes, he's a human, right? Like, but he's always striving to be better. And when somebody calls him out on something, he usually, like, goes, oh, okay, I need to, like, look on that and, like, maybe, you know, tackle that better. Because, you know, like, there's a lot of criticism for some of his work that, you know, there's, like, the magical black man and the magical black person appears a lot in in his stories. And he's kind of tried to get away from that and kind of address that in ways. And he he seems like a good person uh, who just messes up like all humans do, which I think is really fascinating from a author perspective who is especially someone who is so highly regarded
1: because i think i think that's one reason why he is so highly regarded because he's he doesn't picture himself as above reproach and he'll listen to criticism and he will he tries to actively do better and it's it it is really interesting and um he he's just he's more open than other like highly regarded literary figures
0: yeah it's it's very true uh, you know king king is a fascinating uh, i guess we're gonna you know i think a lot of the uh you know the influence of it and the uh, cultural impact of it is also very much tied to king as a writer so you know no better time to talk about king himself than than here uh, it's that he's kind of viewed as a kind of like a trashy pulp author in a like a lot of in a lot of ways, and then you read and you kind of experience the story and you go, there's like a lot of depth there. Like this is not just a a book where you can read and just put it down afterwards and not have it constantly be thinking about it for uh, years, days, months after you watch it.
1: Funny that you mentioned this. That was actually the whole basis of my thesis paper was that. King and the horror genre in general are just so overlooked in literary settings but we shouldn't overlook him this is why because of such a rich narrative that deals with childhood trauma and what becomes of those traumatized children in adulthood it's it's one of the best portraits of PTSD I've ever seen yeah yeah
0: that's uh that's very true and it doesn't shy away from really tough topics and you know uh, a lot of movies, you know, it's one of those things where I like to get somebody in to watch a horror movie with friends is a lot easier than say like a drama in often cases, right? Like you can, yeah. it's it's a really, sm- like one of the things that the horror genre does really well is it has such a mass appeal and kids love it. Like, right? Like there's like this yes. like the idea of being afraid is such a palpable, uh, palpable emotion that just like enthralls children everywhere Yeah. and to tie in very complex stories to that. Uh, and complex ideas and weave that into your plot, uh, it's one of the best ways to actually have them be consumed.
1: Yeah, and I said, as somebody who has dealt with uh, like PTSD on my own and anxiety and depression, putting it in this context has really helped me process a lot of my own thoughts, experiences, and feelings.
0: Right, right. I think one of the things about Horror that occasionally people will get on it about, and this is one of the cases where people do also can attack this movie for that. Is um, it's people who have not experienced trauma saying that it glorifies trauma, and in a lot of ways, like you think about stories about the the final girl. Final Girl, and I've heard a lot of. Um, so I've heard a lot. Uh, there's a really good uh, writer called B.J. Calangelo, and she wrote a lot and writes a lot about how rape revenge films actually really helped her get over her own sexual assault and trauma. Fascinating, but by by, yeah, by dealing with, by dealing with it. And that's a thing where that entire genre, because most film critics are men, and most and these are people who are not as entrenched in what it is to kind of deal with trauma and deal with these experiences, they write it off, right? Like there's a, I think, uh, like uh, you know, Roger Ebert is one of the biggest film critics ever, and then if you look at half of his reviews of horror movies, it just is extremely uh, dismissive. And it's dismissive from uh you know it's he's trying to like he's he does not he's not mean spirited in some of his dismissiveness because he thinks that he's doing the right thing by being like oh this glorifies violence against women but you actually have to realize that like this is the thing that women deal with all the time at a constant basis and this is actually therapeutic for them in some ways. It just
1: depends on how honestly, I. I... In horror, I feel like there's res- there's respectful portrayals and there's not respectful, and that goes with everything. And I think that it's it's kind of I just wish Ebert had just kind of owned the fact that he didn't like horror, because that's fine. He does he didn't have to like horror, but um, honestly, I think that also speaks to like certain people need to review be the ones reviewing certain things because I think that it chapter two and even it chapter one is going to have a different effect on somebody who is like a horror fan or somebody that comes from a background of trauma.
0: Right. And and like, also there's that, that element of, you know, kind of being more aware of what happens in rural America, rural Canada, mm-hmm. rural lifestyles. Yeah. Um, that is, uh, you know, is not really as understood. Like, I think there's like a very, good point this, because the, the movie makes one of the best points a movie makes is kind of about the fallibility of memory the way that we kind of like repress ideas and repress things that happen to us and how it constantly will come up to bite us again and again and again yeah. unless you actually go through the efforts of dealing with it and you see all of these characters who have, who have removed themselves from this rural lifestyle and now are living in the big city and now they're dealing with all of this stuff and they don't realize that all of these foundations for how they're dealing with life are so far rooted back to childhood and they tried to escape it, but you can't really escape it until you deal with it, which is the whole story of it, really.
1: No matter, like, it's like no matter how successful, no matter what they do in their life, it's just looming there and I feel like that's anybody who's experienced trauma, if you don't you have to almost you've gotta look it in the face and say, This happened to me. You can't you you get to a point where you have to stop repressing it for your own peace of mind and for your health for your health because you honestly I think getting to a point where you can talk about your trauma and do that is one of the first steps to getting to a sort of peace of mind with that.
0: Right. And, and you see that happen uh, in in so many different ways in in, in chapter two. Uh, one of my favorite examples is just, you know, Bill kind of just becomes obsessed with Georgie 2.0, basically. Yeah. Um, And and he he you know, he just sees what happened to his you know, his his brother in this kid. And it's like, it's really heart wrenching that sequence where that kid gets eaten on so many levels. Uh, one, um, because I have memories of being in a hall full of glass as a kid and I hated it. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. Uh, you know, cause you just constantly start whacking your head on all these different surfaces and you're like, this is awful. Why did they build this? So like, I'm already like afraid of that. Cause I already have like a, like childhood fear of that myself where I can imagine then, in this uh because it was like a lot i remember like it vividly i was like all alone i was the only kid who went through this at this time no one else was in there so then i was already scared like how am i gonna get out Am i'm gonna be stuck here forever and then uh imagining the added level of oh and there's a killer clown just licking the glass because it wants to eat you like that would be so scary
1: panic attack inducing. honestly when i first watched the trailer I was like this is not in the book but oh my god that's just terrifying that's going to be awesome.
0: Yeah, um was the attack against that kid and was it the attack against the 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 little the little girl with the like facial the, the facial scar was that uh in the book as well or No,
1: the skateboard kid is actually in the book. But oh, he okay. li- he lives. He lives. He him and uh Bill have a nice little talk and he tells him, you know, stay away from the storm drains and stuff. And Bill's not as weirdly fraught as he is in the movie. But I think it almost makes, I think I like how they expanded that. Because it's like Bill's looking at this kid and he he can't not see Georgie.
0: So, okay. So here's the thing that I think is uh, it was fascinating. Because I'm curious, because um, I've heard conflicting reports from people about the book in this. Is Richie and Eddie stuff solely a movie invention, or is that kind of subtly in the book as well?
1: Okay, here's the thing. Eddie is very coded as gay. I don't know if this is intentional, or if this is just something that happened, but Eddie codes really as a gay character. Um, They do have some really good chemistry, but it's more like the movie takes something that is subtext and makes it canon.
0: Okay, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's a, that's a smart thing to do. And I think it's waved in uh, very thoughtfully. I was really impressed by how, uh, how much care and thought they put into this uh, particular portion of the movie. Because, you know, uh, it was clearly what they thought of from the beginning. Because there's a whole bunch of like really subtle things that you kind of notice uh, watching it again with Richie. Uh, one of the big things for me was uh, in part one, where Beverly has the uh, experience with all the blood everywhere. and that's clearly uh, like a metaphor for puberty, obviously. it's like what it's hardly even a metaphor. It's just it's it is just what puberty is, right? She's like kind of like afraid of growing up and being becoming a target of violence towards men because, uh, of you know her maturity, uh, and that is a very seminal moment for the gang and Beverly. Um, and Richie is not part of that. Richie is watching. Richie's like kind of you know, he is he's kind of removed from that that element. And I thought that was kind of like a subtle little hint. And then there's all the costuming, and it was really well done.
1: It was really well done because I, I kind of I thought about it this: how Richie makes all those sex jokes too it's almost like it's almost like a subtle hint that he's he's coming into his sexuality but he's uncomfortable with it too
0: yeah that's 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 very true and i think there's also that really telling moment where um he he pretty much just flat out says i don't write my own jokes right there's that really small moment in this movie where he admits that he did not write his joke. So he's making those sex jokes as a kid, but like, even like, you know, as it gets further into adulthood, uh, those are not clearly experiences that he's actually having. So other people are writing that for him.
1: Yep. He, uh, yeah. And it's just, it's very, it's very sad in a way because you, in the first one, you get, you kind of see those, those little hints of, uh, him, repressing himself and then they fully bring that to the forefront in the second one because he has to face it as an adult
0: yeah yeah what what did you think of all those little vignettes in particular about them kind of each tackling uh, very specific moments of their childhood and trauma and you know just talk if you had any favorites of those and any that you think maybe could have had more to it.
1: I know people are very divided on those. I love them, I think it was necessary. It was 100% necessary because they had to remember. And it was also, it gave more depth to the character. There were some beautiful character moments. I wish Mike had actually had his. Again, back to Mike, I wish he had gotten his. But I love Richie's, because you see so much of his struggle as a young gay man. And just, it's just him and the arcade just breaks my heart. You can't not feel for him. And then Finn Wolfhard's doing just some amazing stuff with his face during that too. And that just breaks my heart. And then Bill Hader is just taking up what Finn's laid down and just running with it beautifully. I love the Paul Bunyan scene. Love it it's from the book, uh, it's almost just like the book, and that's just one of those fascinatingly like, scary scenes, and it's just so inventive, and I was hoping we would see that when we got a sequel, and we did, and I was in love with it.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it was a very uh, fascinating way, like that whole sequence is framed and filmed in such a creepy, creepy way. Um, I guess one of the things that I guess we didn't even mention in part one, but is, is present through all of these scare sequences is there's a lot of very subtle things happening in the background that just unnerve you. I think in that first, in that first movie, when Ben is reading in the library and the librarian is just like staring at him, there's like that sequence where there's like an overhead shot and you can just see the librarian in the background, just staring at him. And it's clearly not the librarian. It's it.
1: Yeah. And what's really interesting is when it pans over with the balloon, you see her sitting at the desk over there and you're like, Oh my God, that couldn't have that. That's it. That couldn't have possibly been her. She couldn't have got there fast enough. And then you're just like, Oh my God, there's just so much interesting stuff going on in the background.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really one of the reasons why these, these uh, movies are worth kind of like revisiting and going back to, because there's a lot that is very easy to miss. Um, and it doesn't detract from the story, uh, and it kind of adds to it, especially the creepy extra layers of things in the background, and scary moments like that. Um, I I guess, like, ooh, I mean, there's just, it's one of these things where, like, IT Chapter 2, as we talked about, is just so full of things to talk about. Same with IT Chapter 1. Um, a few things that I want to mention. What did you think about the cameo by Peter Bogdanovich? I gotta say, I did not expect that at all.
1: I don't think anyone expected that, but it was, oh my god, it was one of, it was like the King cameo. You're just sitting there and you're like, what? But it's awesome.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was great. It was great. But I, I was, I was just like, I don't think I've seen Peter Bogdanovich cameo in things before. Like, this is not like, a thing that I see him do.
1: The power of it. The, pow- <laughs> the power of it. That's just basically all you can say. It's like, oh my gosh, how did they pull any of this off? I mean, it's ambitious, all of it. And then you get these... Just like weird niche cameos, and they're brilliant. You
0: know, I guess we we didn't really talk about how kind of insane it is to a degree that Andy Muschietti got such a big movie to helm, right? Like, he had only done Mama before, and um, there was a few, uh, it looks like there was a few movies that he did in his initial language, like uh, in his home country, Mm -hmm. Um, but, like, this is a huge movie to take on, um, and it's really, Um, and he did it so well, and, like, you are, you're, like, you've only directed three, four other movies, and you're sitting here directing, like, people like James McAvoy, Bill Hader, like, these are huge names, and these are people with, like, such, uh, you know, who are big deals in Hollywood, and you're kind of, like, uh seamlessly uh, tackling them and making a really compelling movie with them, which is just so impressive.
1: I actually saw Mama the day it came out. Um, So Andy has kind of been really close to my heart. I loved Mama. I thought it was this beautiful Uh, riff off of like old school gothic ghost stories and i was a i was already a huge fan of jessica chastain so like jessica chastain in a horror movie uh produced by guillermo del toro i was like this is heaven and i think that's a very underrated film and uh just i think it's it is a logical progression of the empathy in mama
0: You know, that's, you know, that's a good point. That's a good point. Like it's, it actually fits right in with his, uh, with his wheelhouse and so much so that like, you know, he's supposed to direct the next flash movie. And I'm just like, I don't, you know, like he's so interesting. Can we not put him on a superhero movie? I mean, I, I mean, I, I, no, no shame. If you are a huge fan of superhero movies, I'm not trying to criticize or anything like that. Um, they just feel, to me, they kind of always kind of take very creative directors and kind of put them through the ringer a little bit and just go, hey, here's a cookie cutter thing from the studio, which I, I never, never love. Although if anyone, it is uh, Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers does uh, normally give a little bit. I was
1: wanting, I was like, when are we getting the next Andy machete horror movie? I was like, I'm ready for more. <laughs> and then it was kind of disappointing it's like oh he's doing the flash and i was like oh okay thanks
0: he's also he's he he is attached to the uh american version of the attack on Titan movie which uh that is a lot of horror elements that
1: seems like something that would be difficult to get off the ground too so we'll see what happens but i mean i'm just i'm just wanting more horror from him because it's like He has such a great understanding of it. And like any director that can like direct children with such ease is like absolutely amazing to me. And he's him and Mike Flanagan. And Jennifer Kent are like the three that come to mind when it comes to directors that can direct children like nobody's business.
0: Yeah, yeah. so true. I mean, it's it's funny that you know you you bring up Mike Flanagan because that's another guy who's like fully in on the King world and King oh, adaptations yeah. right now too, right? Like, so it seems like Stephen King has a lot of children being the forefront and focus of his books. So uh, you need a good director who can deal with kids. And uh, that's pretty hard to do, to be frank.
1: It is, because I'm like, when you're sitting watching like The Haunting of Hill House and you have the twins who are like five at most, and you're like, oh, how are you going to get those performances from such a small child? And when you're watching Mama, um, the youngest daughter, Lily, You're like, how is he going to pull this off? And he does. Andy Muschietti does. And you're just sitting there and I'm like, you guys have blown my mind. And then when you watch the Doo Jennifer Kent's like doing her most getting this just insane performance out of this kid. And I'm like y'all we should just stop give you all all of the awards because you've done something that some directors cannot do period
0: well very true because there's that old that there's that old motto in show business that's like don't work with animals or kids like that's just like it's so widespread that it's a like it's a parody to even say it at this point um, so it's it's amazing uh, oh well, before we get too far I gotta talk about adult Henry Bowers
1: Oh um, my god. <laughs> there we go. We, Henry
0: Bowers. We got I'll come back to Henry Bowers, but like teach Grant somehow bought it, like it's another one of those things where it's like it's so well executed that this is like the man that this version of Bowers would become. And it's Just so... no Oh god.
1: Now, deep in your soul when you first see him, you're like that that's Henry Bowers. We know there's that dang mullet and yeah it's just oh my god and he just kind of embodies that that gleeful just menacing just meanness yeah
0: yeah i it's what's fascinating about bowers in this and i guess in the book there's a few more people that uh pennywise is like possessed that they're used to like bring him in at the end because bowers doesn't seem like a huge th- like he's a threat but he's like a very like he's very unstable. Um, yeah. So like he doesn't he doesn't go in for things like the kill, and he's not smart. So he like he think he pretty much thinks that he has taken out Eddie because he literally like leaves and goes one down a bunch to, again few more to go so he thinks that he's like taken eddie off the board with his with his one stab which again anyone could stab that way it'd be terrifying and horrible Yes, Um, but um but you know uh it's 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 very it's a very interesting version of uh of this this character because he is a threat and he is very dangerous but he's also still stupid um and he's he's clearly not got any smarter
1: over 27 years so it makes you wonder if one of the reasons it originally chose henry bowers to help in the even as when their children is because he's not as intelligent and it it could make you know swaying him a lot easier yeah
0: yeah it's it's one of those things where uh you know like there's a big theme in in this entire uh, story where it's basically like yeah it's really easy to control the hateful because um, it's really easy just to twist the right buttons and to just kind of um, you know it's it's very easy to flame hate it's, it's difficult to uh, flame love because there is so much hate and that's really what uh, what this whole thing is about is just like the difficulty of friendship and holding on to things and what you should hold on to and uh yeah it's much easier to flame the hate and you see that throughout the little snippets of history where yeah. like you were mentioning about you know the like the Gary's version of the kkk taking yeah. out that nightclub and like all these like subtle manipulations which are just taking advantage of what uh what is already there
1: yeah in humans. and the losers themselves I, I this imagery is not in the book but you're talking about the hate versus the love But I absolutely one of my favorite additions to the to the movies, period, is the imagery of, you know, Greta writes loser on Eddie's cast and he just goes over the V. And I think that's I know it's kind of become a novelty now, but I love that imagery because he's they're calling him a loser, but he's he's choosing love. He's choosing to be the person he wants to be in that moment
0: that's uh you know there's a lot of uh ideas about belief right like the the idea of if you have faith and if you believe and it's it's weird because you know i could really see this being twisted and i'm you know, not twisted but just be adapted to a religious connotation right because like a lot of uh a lot of the moments are like oh this 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 thing kills monsters this kills monsters and then he believes in it so hard that it actually Just root that, like that idea of pure belief, just wrecks Pennywise.
1: Yeah, and here's the thing: so much of what the losers do is rooted in their love for one another. Like, I just love that little moment when Bev gives him that the the spike and is like, you know, if you believe it, it'll happen. And I'm just, I think that it's just such a nice little moment because she's giving him kind of a little bit of her confidence because, you know, that was Bev's, the weapon she pretty much used to harm Pennywise the first time go around, and she's handing that off, and it's like, here, take some of my, almost my guts, my gusto.
0: Handing handing off that, that symbol of belief to somebody who needs it, and then they believe in it even harder, and it does, it pretty much is one of the final blows against Pennywise, uh, you know, because it just... It just takes him for a loop. Uh, and, and what's fascinating with Eddie is there's, there's these great moments of empathy with his character, like where he's just like, don't, please don't be mad at me. Like I was just scared. Like I didn't know what to do. Like I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. Cause there's that scene where, you know, that Rich, Richie is just getting mauled by um, the uh, Bert, the head of Stanley, which uh, which is a direct call out to the thing. yeah like, It's so blatant um where uh you know it literally comes out in the same way and just like in in the thing when it happens a character goes you gotta be fucking kidding me and then richie says the exact same line and it was one of those things where when i first watched it i was a little critical of that moment until i kind of remembered and kind of put in context of how this book is Um, in that it's all about childhood fears manifesting and kind of coming back to haunt you. And like, you know, that was pop culture of the time period in which they lived in. Those kids probably saw the thing and it would have haunted them dearly. So it would have been a memory for Pennywise to play off of. It actually fits in with the movie. That really, and it
1: happened in the book with, it's like they updated it for the 80s because as you said earlier, like, There's the werewolf and the mummy in the book, and those are direct from, like, you know, the old monster movies, which uh, I think King himself loved as a child and was terrified by.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so it's so funny because especially in early King books, like there's like no shying away from that stuff. Uh, I remember I read Salem's Lot, and it's so oh, like yeah. like he'll like even name uh, what type of model kits one of the kids is making uh, of a monster. Like he'll literally be like he's doing the old Aurora model kit of the Wolfman. I I love that, and me being the colossal dumb nerd that I am, uh, instantly is like, oh, I know that
1: model kit. That model kit is so cool. So yeah! like of, oh my God.
0: Unabashed like, love for for that old stuff
1: yeah and like when you're reading it you can tell when it was written you can tell it was written in 84 because he is like constantly talking about america he's constantly talking about bruce springsteen's born in the usa and like the book opens with a quote from born in the usa born down in a dead man's town and then i'm sitting there like i i actually own a vinyl of that album and i just you're just sitting there and you're like yeah this is awesome Yeah,
0: yeah so good so good so good uh but yeah it's one of those things where they're not just meaningless references they are there for a reason to set the stage to set what these characters are and what they believe in and you know in in the terms of salem's lot Um, it's used to kind of distribute and talk about how the kid has knowledge about how to deal with vampires. And a lot of it is not right, obviously, but like he has all of these beliefs on how to deal with the undead because he watched all these old movies. And and, uh, in it, it's very much like, oh yeah, these are the fears of the child that's kind of become manifest in their adulthood. And it just, it's one of those things that represents uh, what they were scared of as kids. Right. So. It works.
1: And like works. going back to Eddie, like where he's talking about, like his I'm sorry at that point just kind of breaks my heart because you can tell that's such that's rooted in like his lifelong trauma because you know, when you meet people who have had kinds of trauma they'll they'll apologize just constantly and just in that moment I saw a little bit of myself there that I'm sorry, Bill. And you can tell he's he's genuinely sorry and he's broken up about it. And just so much of just their reactions throughout the movie track for me as somebody who has dealt with trauma and is an adult now.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, uh, it, it is all at the service of the story. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, movies and TV shows that will kind of, in references to things and it won't have any meaning and it'll just be like a meaningless meaningless thing and everything is so connected here that it all kind of goes back to you know he was unable to like eddie kind of learns from his experiences like the one of the biggest uh end things that he pretty much tells everyone about is that he almost killed it himself when he was oh. fighting the leper Like, and he had just kind of, like, uh, I I don't know if it's supposed to be a leper.
1: Um, It is. It is.
0: Okay. Um, And it's supposed to, like, represent his, like, fear of germs and disease. But, like, he almost killed it by just, like, finally, like, overcoming his own fear about it and fighting back against it. And, like, he literally wrapped his hands and was choking it and because he believed so hard in what he was doing in that moment. uh, He almost killed it himself. And that's, like, a crazy... Uh, crazy cool reveal um and it really helps to kind of like finalize and and give more credence to that final moment of them just like believing so hard that he is not as scary or as important as he believes and you know and, and taking that power away from him which is which is amazing
1: i i i totally agree with that and i often i think about how not only the leper symbolizes eddie's fear of like germs and uh illness but also is like a manifestation of his mother's munchausen by proxy
0: yes yes that's a thing that i guess we've kind of neglected to talk about before but yeah it is very much uh a munchausen by proxies happening with him uh, with his placebos and and gazebos as they call it
1: I (laughs) i love that that's just so cute because it's like yeah, you could see a kid really doing that.
0: Yep, yep. And exactly. I also, I loved, I love how they call back to that. It's like one of those moments yes. where uh, Pennywise uses it to take advantage of them and <laughs> to bring them back to them being a child by mentioning yeah. the, the, like, term, like, oh, don't you mean gazebos? When he's trying to, like, pretty much scare yeah. them into making sure that he's all powerful and can take them out. Um, and it is just a, a, a really fascinating way how all that kind of melts together, and uh, you know he's still taking medication that he necessarily doesn't need because of this Munchausen syndrome.
1: Really fascinating because when I was writing my thesis, I looked at like some of the first case studies they ever did on um, adults who had experienced Munchausen by proxy, and it's just really, just almost awe-inspiring how spot-on. At eddie's mother and at eddie is in general in relation to that because the case studies will mirror some of the stuff like they told like eddie's mother had told him he was like deadly ill as a baby he was he had this this and this and there like he had all these like elective procedures and uh you know um pretty much just all these illnesses thrust upon him that he had no uh he had no he had no reason to not believe his mother and there was a woman whose mother had told her her whole life she'd had tuberculosis as a child and like she had tuberculosis and like when she was like in her 50s she finds out she never had tuberculosis she was not ill as a child was not as ill as her mother made her out to be and it's just there's so much of Eddie in these real life cases and just how their mothers went about um, abusing them is a lot like how Eddie's mother abused him. And you're just sitting here and you're just reading this and thinking about all these different parallels. And you're like, wow, this is really something because you know, that's, i mean especially in the 80s that's not something that was talked about a lot no
0: no I, you know it's it's really one of those cases of king being really prescient because um, uh, much housing by proxy comes up a lot nowadays like it's a it's a very clear uh storytelling device and there was that hbo movie about it and that based on a real life case um <laughs> and uh it's kind of more in the public vernacular nowadays but you know it's never, like, they never go out and say the words Munchausen by yeah. proxy, but that's, like, very clearly what's going on.
1: which yeah, is fascinating. Know, and, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, like, King lets us, like, we know. Like, with Beverly's father just being so, just, creepy, we know that he has these repressed, abusive, incestuous feelings towards her. And... Yeah he yeah. never really comes out and fully says it and you're just sitting there and you're like i feel dirty just knowing this and poor bev is so young that it kind of goes over her head at that point but not completely she knows something
0: isn't right yeah definitely definitely it's a uh, oh god that is a uh, that is a tough they, they readdress it even more in this movie where it's literally like looking at old photos of yeah. her mother and like just like seeing the similarities and just like getting all of these like horrible, horrible sequences of uh, things to put this uh, this poor child through, right? Like it's just, oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs>
1: I remember just that scene in the movie where she just starts just chopping at her hair and you know, you're just sitting there and you just, I just felt like tears just start coming, just pouring down my cheeks because that's just such, it's a powerful moment, but it's also such a depressing moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, uh, I, and I guess there's a lot made of Beverly and her hair, right? Because like you know that like your yeah. hair is like winter fire and like the idea that like she can get two very different compliments um, and they have two very different meanings, right? Like there's a much deeper, horrifying meaning behind what her father says about it. Um, but she can take some compliments to it to heart in a way. But it's also like she left it. Like she had an emotional... Like she had a brief moment of happiness when she read the poem and she thought she knew what was going on. But at the end of the day, when she finally escaped the town, she left it there.
1: Yeah. And the thing is, it's a it's an interesting juxtaposition because it's two different looks. Looking at it, it's two different examples of masculinity. Beverly's right, father right. is obviously a toxic. And then you have Ben, even as a child... It's a very healthy kind of masculinity because he doesn't want recognition even for that poem. He just wants Bev to feel good about herself. He wants right. to make her smile. It's it's like it has nothing to do with him. It's even in the book. Let me see if I can find this real quick because this part is it just sticks in my head because of just there's poor like Ben is feeling some really adult feelings.
0: Right, right. As as you as you're looking for that and as you're looking for that, I just want to say like King has been talking about toxic masculinity for a long time, but they just haven't put the words in. I remember experiencing Christine and like, you know, getting into that story and that story is textbook Toxic masculinity. Oh and yeah, like you, and and it's so it's such a good uh version of talking about how this idealized nature of this '50s muscle car and this way that you you would act when you're in the in this time period and how you're supposed to act as a man and and how it just basically destroys everyone around you because you have such a toxic viewpoint of what it means to be a male and exp- and like you know twisted view of it.
1: I have, I have, actually have two little parts, like there's this cute little moment where Ben's just sitting in the park and every once in a while he'll whisper, like, I love Beverly Marsh, and sometimes under his breath he'll whisper, like, Beverly Hanscom, and I just think that's so cute because that's something that you usually picture a little girls doodling, like, oh, uh, so-and-so, like, my name, so-and-so's last name, and then Ben's doing it, and it's just so sweet and innocent um i just i love i love that moment and um okay i found the one uh where the moment she had taken to speak to him had been a striking moment for ben he wanted to mark it in his memory probably beverly had a crush on some bigger boy a sixth or maybe even seventh grader and she would think that maybe that boy had sent the haiku that would make her happy and so the day she got it would be marked in her memory. And although she would never know it had been Ben Hanscom who marked it for her, that was all right. He would know.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a lot deeper than, you know. Um, it's And you get, like, because, again, there's so many good facial moments with Ben yes. between both of these movies that, like, you kind of get that depth of emotion, but they don't go and say that. So it's a very... It's a very interesting way of, uh, you know, of adapting uh, a book, which is a very cerebral experience, where the you really get into the heads of all these characters and get to know all their emotions, you get to know all their feelings, you get to know what drives them, and to adapt that into a movie and do it so deftly, where like yes, I can actually see all that there. It's just not said, which is just the, which is a really uh, props to. Uh, because that's not easy at all.
1: That moment, like uh, speaking of Ben and just my absolute heartbreak, he even as an adult, you're like he still he never lost his sweetness. He never lost that good nature that he has, and then like when they're sitting on the steps in their townhouse, and she's got the postcard just that look that he gives her he's like finally she knows it was me and then when she says bill there's just like this small just like drop in his face and his demeanor and just his just mood you can tell and it's amazing
0: really really it's all there all on display and you know it's uh it's impressive like i you know i think i think that's kind of what uh, you know kind of transitioning into the final thoughts because it's one of those things where you know we could talk about these movies for hours for days i mean you literally wrote a, a whole piece on it right like you wrote a huge uh, yes. discussion about uh, i wrote
1: about a 30 i wrote a 38 page thesis paper over it and i also before the movie came out i write for um morbidlybeautiful.com, and like a morbidly beautiful horror, and it um, I did like little sections, like little rundowns of each character before that, leading up to the movie was released. So I've written a lot about these characters, and I could write even more, and probably will write more in the future. Uh, gosh, there's just there's so many layers to each one of them, and I I mean, I'm so in love with these characters that honestly, I know there's been talk of an extended version an extended cut that's both movies together with, like, extra scenes and stuff, I was like, I would watch six hours of these characters. I mean, if you just wanted to show, like, uh, show me, like, I don't know, just their minutiae of just going through their day, all the mundane stuff, I'd watch it because they're that interesting.
0: Yeah. No, that's true. Honestly, I think, so, you know, I think that's coming soon. I think I think they're gonna drop that I think it's gonna be a surprise drop soon um, I, you know
1: and no, honestly I, I think we need it like we need that pick me up dang it <laughs> as 2020's been bad enough as it is we need the pick me up of the extended cut right
0: and what I, I totally agree and one of the reasons why I think it's coming soon um, is uh, you know full disclosure we're recording this episode a bit in advance of October. But you can't, right now, you cannot even rent these movies, at least in Canada, on any digital platform until September 1st.
1: Oh, so that's can't... weird. Yeah, I, also, I, one of the I had first to buy things, this. <laughs> one of the first things I looked at when I got my Blu-ray was if there was deleted scenes, and there wasn't. So that also made me think there was plenty, because the first one has deleted scenes on it. And I was like... Um, is there a reason why those deleted scenes aren't on there? Because they did wind up incorporating one of the uh, scenes that had got on the cutting room floor in the second one, stands bar mitzvah. And so now I'm just like, okay, they're planning something,
0: right? And I think, I think maybe by the time it comes, by the time this episode's released, there might be a bigger. Oh my
1: god. The- we could do, honestly, a follow-up if they do that. Just oh, yeah. Like,
0: so. Oh, yeah. I would, be, I would be very interested in doing a follow-up, yes. uh, you know, just to kind of address, like, what it, what it looks like as, as one complete picture. Because, you know, they, they always talk about this for movies that have, like, parts one and parts two, and I think this is one of the few movies where I actually think that it would work as one yeah. big, long movie. I think, um,
1: honestly, I think a cut... And like a super cut of this would actually fix a lot of the issues that people had with chapter two. I think yeah. that some of the yeah. pacing issues and stuff and everything would make more sense in the context of a super cut. And I think that, I think that a super cut would generally be even better received.
0: Yeah. I bet you, I bet you that's true. And I mean, uh, what better time to release it than, you know, in the fall season, gearing up to Halloween, a Halloween, which, is going to be marred with a, you know, a, not as much celebration as normal. Yeah,
1: I own both Blu-rays and stuff, but like if you don't think that I like wouldn't pre-order and like throw like an insane amount of money at a uh, extended cut right now, I mean, I mean, that's probably just me telling all myself about how crazy I am over it and the, just the characters and the world but I'm like, yeah. I would just like drop everything and be like, "Hey, the extended cut. I need this. I need this in my life."
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, you know, I, I generally I feel the same way. And I, you know, before we wa- watching uh, it chapter two, I probably would not have said that. So, you know um i i'm really glad that you know i you know i had this excuse to revisit this movie and kind of give it a better uh, better shake and a better rundown and uh you know give it the respect it deserves because this is a really good
1: movie it's amazing how sometimes a second watch will I, will improve your opinion or you'll be like this doesn't hold up at all and I was like, "This is a movie that I think gets better every time I watch it." And I was like, "Anybody who doesn't it, like, if anybody's listening to this and you weren't big on it, Chapter Two at the beginning, go back and watch it now. Go back and do
0: that." I I agree. I agree. I think I think you know. I guess uh, I guess we really did just go into our final thoughts. Like you know, honestly, yeah. uh, it Chapter One is amazing. It Chapter Two is just as amazing and has just as much to talk about. Uh, you know. Um, it's, uh, it's a it's a wide ranging topic, and you know what? I bet you when that uh, I hope that new big one does come out because we will a thousand percent do a follow up because uh, ah, this has been a wonderful conversation. This has so. been
1: so fun. Like this has been the highlight of my week, and it just almost makes all this just the weird things that have happened to me this week just worth it almost because this has been great. Oh my god, I was like one thing that I was thinking about that I haven't said yet. They're talking about how it's just not as charming when they're adults. And I'm like, honey, you're speaking about this as an adult. You should know it's not going to be as charming. Because I was like, you know what? It reminds me, chapter two and just them as adults reminds me of a John Mulaney quote where it's like, this might as well happen because adulthood's already just so GD weird.
0: Yeah, no, I, you know that's that that's totally fair, and I and it's just uh, it's a weird uh, weird thing that you just have to deal with. Uh, is that yeah? Things are not going to be as charming when you're adult because the the a lot of the mysticism of the world is gone, and uh, you become a little jaded, right? Like that's kind of that's kind of what happens.
1: Yeah, I kept just sitting there, and I was like, "This is that." I was like, "Chapter two is that John Mulaney quote personified," because it's like this might as well happen. <laughs>
0: Exactly,
1: God, exactly. I feel like that would be my response if Mike Hanlon had called me. I'd be like, "Well, you know, might as well. <laughs> might as well. Might as you know, well. Adulthood's just already so just absurdly weird. Just go ahead. I mean,
0: go I ahead the- and fight evil. I guess fight the, imp- <laughs> and saw the the impersonation of pure evil, and you know, just go at it. I guess you know." 2020 would not be that surprising if I had, like, an old friend call up and be like, hey, we killed a killer clown, you know? And I was like, oh, well, it's 2020, so I'm sure something stupid was gonna happen. Yeah,
1: my, my, one of my good friends, she calls my hometown the dairy of Kentucky, so if I get, like, I mean, I don't have any childhood friends because, like, I was like, I think this is why I just relate to Ben hardcore because, I mean, Ben, before he met the losers, was a lonely child, and, like, all of my childhood friends turned on me and stuff. And oh like,
0: yeah. I, I mean, didn't... I'm the same way. I the first thing when I got that call, I'd be like, Who are you? Why are you calling
1: me? I'd be like I'd that. be like, What do you want? Like, why do you what do you want with me? <laughs> I would just oh my god, I just that would be sheer terror have to talk to somebody that like was once your really good friend that bullied that wound up bullying you and like That's why I said I was like, I didn't really have that kind of support system that they have until I was in college. I was pretty much an adult when that happened. But I was like, is there a wrong time to have just that kind of magic happen? But I I mean, if somebody was to call me today, I'd be like, this is just 2020. This might as well happen.
0: (laughs) Might as well happen. Put on my galoshes and go into the sewer to fight evil. Might as well.
1: Time to, it's time to go. I mean, you know, all I could hope for is that a man like Ben Hanscom would be down there because I was like, adult Ben Hanscom is the blueprint. He is, he is the standard for a man, in my opinion. So
0: I guess with that, uh, you know, where can they follow your further adventures of you going back to the Dairy of Kentucky and you know fighting evil?
1: Wow. Uh, oh my God, like. You can find me on Twitter where I like, I try to stay pretty open about like all of like my weird mental stuff. And like, going, I actually wrote a large, long essay about how, you know, as an adult, it helped me really contextualize a lot of my past trauma and how, you know, horror actually kind of helped me get on a Road to Healing, and it helped me feel not so alone back in the day when I was that awkward teenager living through uh, proverbial hell. I imagine, I imagine,
0: and you also do a lot, a lot of writing as well, right? Would you like to plug all the places that they can find your
1: writing? Hey, you can find me at Morbidly Beautiful Horror, and I have a link in my Twitter, which is at Jamie A Writes. Um, that's me right there. Um. I have actually been um, entering my screenplay in a lot of festivals and contests. Um, I think it's funny that you we brought up rape revenge and like trauma. Uh, that, that's that's pretty much the basis of my screenplay right now. Bystanders. Um, it's been a three-year journey getting that to where I want it to be. Um, so I've been putting that into some. Uh, Festivals and stuff, and I've gotten some good response. So if anybody is like interested in that, totally hit me up because I will. Uh, yeah, I'm like I'm at the point where I'm like I wanna I wanna make this because I wanna add to the uh, whole just horror that has something really important to say, and I think that's most of what I write. Period
0: amazing i i really hope that you know that gets off the ground because i just sounds like i'd love to see that so you know
1: oh my gosh i need to send i need to send you the screenplay then <laughs> just, oh, that,
0: I'm, you know what i would be amazing look that sounds that sounds amazing so I guess i'd i love to
1: hear you your thoughts on that because i was like i wanted to do my own twist on that genre that little subgenre, and just introduce some really interesting characters into horror that are just innately my own.
0: That sounds amazing and stupendous. Uh, So I really hope that goes on. And thank you for joining me because this has been a, this has been a fantastic episode. This
1: has been great.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I think this is going to go out. uh, This is going to be, you know, this is going to be ending Stephen King month.
1: Oh my gosh. Um,
0: so this is going out on the 30th. So people get to listen to this right in that perfect Halloween spot and just, you yeah. know, enjoy, enjoy this. Uh, or if, maybe you'll listen to this in the future in like a June, whatever. If you listen yeah. to that, then I hope you enjoy it too.
1: Like I hope you enjoy my just never ending hate of Henry Bowers. And if you haven't read the book now, you know about my movement, which is called justice for Mr. Chips. I've <laughs> been. <laughs> 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 I've been saying that since I read the book. I was like, justice for Mr. Chips. Amazing. because God, poor poor Mike. I was like, justice for Mr. Chips. Justice for Mike Allen.
0: <laughs> Very true. Poor, poor Mr. Chips. Um, if you like this podcast, you can always follow us on Twitter at MPodcastM. Or you can uh, write to us at MilkshakesandMimosas at gmail.com. Uh, and if you decide that, you know, you want to support us a little bit on Patreon, we do have a Patreon where every week we uh, post a new episode uh, regarding, uh, so we, I have another podcast called Triassic Park, and, some t- and the Patreon does stuff for both of them, so you can either get uh, special features talking about an episode of TV that either deals with something Riverdale related, or something that deals with something dinosaur related. We kind of shuffle back and forth. Um, and as always, thank you and blame the CW. Goodbye. (laughs)